Right. Thank you, Dave. Well, as, as this retreat sort of draws to a close, um, I just want to share a few things from my heart before, before we look into the Word again. Um, I, have a, I have a few regrets. Three, I think. Um, one, that I couldn't bring my wife. Um, I couldn't do it, but I still regret it. At the beginning of the trip, I was disappointed that I couldn't bring my wife because I just love to be with my wife. And I love to travel with my life, my wife, and I, I just wanted to be with her and wanted her to see Australia. Now, however, my regret has changed. I regret it because she didn't get to meet you. Um, I will, however, tell her about you and um, tell her many of the names and uh, conversations and experiences I've had with you. Um, so that's my first regret. My second regret is that about this retreat is that it's almost over. Um, I have relished my time with you in every way, um, except for an almost pulled hamstring. <laughs> Thank you, Janelle. It, in every in in every other way. Um, personally, you you have been so kind to me. Um, you have welcomed me. I didn't feel like a guest speaker. You have encouraged me. Um, You've opened your heart to me as a church. Um, I mean, I feel like I've been with family this weekend. New family, but family nonetheless. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for that. Beyond the personal, um, and I really want you to hear this, I've been profoundly moved by what I've seen God do in three years uh, in this church. The gospel witness that has sprung up in, in Sydney, the community, the family that has emerged, um, just watching you interact, watching you love each other, watching you minister to each other this morning through the encouragements and the, the, the prophetic words and the prayer and the worship, the servanthood happening everywhere. Um, the, the quality of the people God has gathered. I look at the couples that are here who just love each other and love Christ. It's so evident. The young men that God has brought here. Wow. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for, for young men because I train pastors and I have a big interest in, in that. Um, there's marks of grace all around. And here's what that does for me. That encourages me. Um, that inspires me because, this is what I want you to hear, the, I, I, I don't believe the ultimate effects of this church and what God has done and the foundation that is here and the seeds that have been planted, the ultimate effects of that don't concern merely you. As wonderful as this church is, those effects, I'm, I'm not thinking only you. Um, as we prayed before this church began, uh, I believe the ultimate effect of this church, the ultimate effect of you and your lives and your servanthood and your living and your giving and your devotions and your life groups and your 
Sunday morning worship and your interaction with non-believing neighbors, I believe the effect of that will really extend throughout Sydney and perhaps around the perimeter of this nation. And who knows? Into other nations as well. As, as young men are, are raised up and as people are trained and equipped and as the gospel is proclaimed and as churches are planted, I mean, my heart is bursting with faith for you. And just from a sovereign grace standpoint, we didn't just support Dave and plant a church here just because, oh, it'd be good to have a church in Australia. It kind of expands, you know, like the British Empire, you know, it just kind of expands. No, it's, it's because, well, obviously God was behind that, but it's also because of to, to extend the reach of the gospel so that you and us together as partners in the gospel can play our little part in the great commission that our Lord and our Master has called us to. So, you brought me much joy this weekend and much encouragement, and I cannot thank you enough, so thank you. And I'm going to remember your names, too. I got every guy on stage, and, every, and gal, every person on stage, except for the piano player who I hadn't met. So, who was that? Marcus. Who's Marcus? Okay, I got it now. All right. Uh, good. Here's my third regret. After observing the certain members of the Taylor Life Group competing, <laughs> and after observing certain members of the Taylor Life Group receiving the Sovereign Grace Cup... My regret is that I did not preach that message last night on humility and servanthood <laughs> before the games. I prayed. I thought I, I knew the direction that the Lord was leading. I, I missed one thing. And... Uh, But Wilson Life Group, remember, the last shall be first. <laughs> and remember the Gideon principle. God uses a few to do mighty things. That's right. Turn in your Bibles back to the book of Philippians, actually. Back to the book of Philippians. As we conclude our talks, we sort of put it under the umbrella, living life on purpose. We looked the first morning on... We looked at God's purpose. God's purpose. What is he doing? Last night we looked at Christ's example. How we live in light of that purpose. So God's purpose, Christ's example. This morning we're going to look at our pursuit. God's purpose, Christ's example, our pursuit. In light of all of that, what should we be striving for? What is to be the goal of our lives? What is to animate us? What is to inspire us? What is to motivate us? What is our goal? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to be preaching, looking at particular chapter 3 verses 7 to 11. 7 to 11. But to get the context, I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 1. Philippians 3 
verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A few months ago in a, a national newspaper, Wall Street Journal in America, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Bernstein published a column entitled this. Are we all braggarts now? Ms. Bernstein writes the following. Friends, family, and co-workers, I think you're fabulous. Just not quite as fabulous as you think you are. Consider your Facebook status updates. Best gift ever from best husband ever. Swam 30 minutes at a very fast time, despite the large amounts of Chardonnay served to me on the plane last night. Got my first royalty check for my book. Sunset sail turned into moonlight sail, shooting stars everywhere. Perfect. <laughs> she goes on. A benign reading would be that these are just typical daily updates. But folks... This is bragging, whether you recognize it or not, and it's out of control. How did this happen? Clearly, the Internet has given us a global audience for our bombast, and social media sites encourage it. We are expected to be perfect all the time. The result is more people carefully stage managing their online image. I love that. Boasting isn't just a problem on the Internet. In a society of unrelenting competition where reality show contestants duke it out for the approval of aging celebrities and pastors have publicists, is it any wonder we market ourselves relentlessly? Is it any wonder we market ourselves relentlessly? 
Well, this, this column gives a rather humorous take on something that is really, I think, a universal human tendency to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others. We spoke a little bit about this last night. But I think if we dig deeper, that tendency to exalt ourselves reveals something deeper, something more fundamental that underlies that self-exaltation. It reveals what we truly value. Um, Placing our greatest value, finding our greatest comfort right here. Finding our greatest comfort in ourselves. Who we are. What people perceive us to be. What we do. What we've accomplished. Boasting is just spreading that news. Boasting is just marketing what we really value. Self-confidence is what leads to self-exaltation. But the text we just read that I want to look at this morning... It addresses this universal human tendency to value ourselves, to value ourselves above all else, to to place the highest premium on who I am and in particular on what I have done. And as we've just read um, in verses one to six, the context here is Paul's warning He's warning the Philippians about a group of people, they're known, as, they're known as Judaizers, who, these are people, influential people, telling the Philippians a message, telling the Philippians that to truly be Christians, to, to truly know God, they had to not only believe in Christ, but they had to submit themselves to the entire Jewish law. In essence, they had to become Jews first to be Christians. They were being, the Philippians were being tempted by something pernicious. They were being tempted to add to Christ's work their own work. To add to what Christ has definitively done their own contribution to that work. They were being tempted to place their confidence in human achievement. Not all of their confidence, some of their confidence. Yes, hold on to Christ. Yes, believe in Christ. They weren't being told to renounce Christ, but yet it's not quite enough. Some confidence in you, some confidence in what you add, some confidence in what you contribute. Christ was not enough. That was the fundamental temptation. Christ was not enough. Now, in verses 7 to 11, the end, the second half of what I read, Paul continues his appeal. He's continuing to to fight for the Philippians' soul, to equip them, to give them discernment, to defend them. But he doesn't just exhort them. He doesn't just lay out abstract teaching. In, In these verses, he offers his own personal story. His own personal story of the futility of human achievement. This, I love this text because it is at once profoundly theological and deeply personal. Uh, It's profound because, I mean, it really lays out a theological outline of the entire sweep of salvation. If you look at it, you find there conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification. So much of the whole ordo salutis is, is, is just wedged into these few, verse, these few verses, very dense verses. If the Christ hymn that we looked at last night, remember that wonderful text in Philippians 2? If the Christ hymn is 
the Mount Everest of Philippians, then verses 7 to 11 would be K2. But it's also deeply personal. Because it lays out the glorious effects in the life of one who had encountered Christ truly. Paul Paul describes here the radical reorientation that comes to one who sees Christ for who he truly is. And receives what Christ has done for himself. And at the heart of that reorientation... At the heart of what happened to Paul is is a change, a transformation in what he valued. That's what's at the heart. Things that once were precious to him no longer are. Things he once ignored now captivate him. In fact, I think that's really the key point of this amazing text. Paul wants the Philippians to have that same kind of reorientation. And what Paul wants them to see and what I believe God wants us to see this morning. He wants he, I, This text is a gift to create a radical reorientation in the hearts of the members of Summer Grace Church of Sydney. God had you in mind. God had, this is amazing, isn't it? God had this retreat in mind when he inspired this text. That's how massively wise and omni-competent God is. He had you in mind, and he has a message for you, a message for me, a message for all of us. And this is what I think it is. It's really simple. The most valuable thing in all of life is knowing Christ. How simple does it get? But how much more profound does it get? The most valuable thing in all of life is knowing Christ. The Philippians were being tempted to value something else. To value their own achievement. And Paul had already told them, you see in those earlier verses, look, if if anyone can boast in human achievement, good grief, it's not you, it's me. You're a bunch of former pagans. You're, you don't have much hope. If anyone could boast, it's, it's me. Come on, look at me. And he lays out those qualifications. But, but something happened to Paul that turned his life upside down, that completely inverted what he trusted in, where he placed his confidence, what he valued. And he came to see what's truly value, what, what's really worth our trust and our confidence and our affections and our time and our energies, what's really worth all of that, what's most valuable is knowing, really knowing Jesus Christ. That's what I think God is after in our lives this morning. To have a similar reorientation, to have a similar reminder with all that competes for our attention. And as I've gotten to know you and hear what you've studied, hear what you do, hear what your life looks like on a day-to-day basis, I know that differs. There's a lot of different things competing for various people's attention. But with all that competes for our attention, with all that our hearts go after, all the things we find rest in, all the things we find comfort in, all the places we go for refuge, amidst all of that clamor, 
Amidst all of those, those illusions, there is one thing more valuable than anything else in your life. It's knowing Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at this. As I said, Paul uses his own story to help us grasp that reality and to experience a similar reorientation. And in this little autobiographical sketch, we learn at least three things about knowing Christ. Because we don't, Paul doesn't want knowing Christ to be a cliché. He doesn't want people hearing the most valuable thing in all of life is knowing Christ. Yes, yes, I've heard this before. It's not a slogan. It's not a motto. It's not a cliche. And so this text shows us three aspects of knowing Christ. Three things that help us see what knowing Christ really means. So you can test yourself against it. What knowing Christ really means and how knowing Christ is meant to affect our lives. All right. That's what we're going to look at. Aspect number one. The first aspect. Knowing Christ requires recognizing his superior worth. Knowing Christ requires recognizing his superior worth. All right? Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here Paul references his former life filled with, with advantages, with gifts, with achievements, with status, with bragging rights. And he reflects on that using accounting terminology. I know we have some business people in here. Um, he, Paul here is like a businessman preparing a balance sheet. And on, on one side of the balance sheet, he stacks up all those things that are his benefits. That's the term gain there in verse 7. It means something earned. A gain. A profit. Okay? And so, Paul's personal balance sheet was stacked. I mean, talk about... Uh, talk about a worthwhile investment. Uh, when it came to things to boast in, when it came to things to have confidence in, to, to convince himself and others, I'm important. <laughs> and not, here's the thing for Paul, not just before man, not just on his Facebook status to impress all his friends. No, Paul had things to boast in before God, if there was such a thing. If, if he's saying, if ever a man could commend himself to God, it's me. That's an audacious thing to say, isn't it? But he was right. He was right. If ever a man could commend himself to God, it's me. But then came the shocking reversal. All those benefits, all those accomplishments, all those Marks of status, all those prophets, they're now losses. You see the word loss there in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's another commercial term. It refers to a loss of money or damage of goods. You're writing off inventory. 
that's, that's worthless. So now Paul says, all those things, all those profits, all those things that weighted down my, the asset side of my balance sheet, I've moved them. I count them as losses, write-offs, disadvantages. I move them from the asset side to the liability side. And then, in verse 8, it goes further. It intensifies. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, it's not just those advantages of verses 5 and 6, circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, zeal as to the law, blame a Pharisee as to zeal, persecutor, righteousness on the law, blameless. Now, it's not just those things. Now, it's everything. Everything that anyone might consider to be of value in this present age. Come up with your own list. For Paul, everything. What do you think, Riley? Paul would say, loss. What do you think, Chris? Paul would say, loss. Everything loss. I don't care what you come up with. It's all loss. Anything that might encourage you to have confidence in yourself, Paul would say, well, if it was me, loss. Now, I don't know for Paul what that would be. Uh, I can imagine for Paul that would have been his Roman citizenship. Incredibly important in the Roman Empire. Uh, protection and status and value and economic opportunity. and Roman citizenship, Paul? Not everyone has that loss. Disadvantage. Material possessions? Loss. Maybe his role as an apostle. Maybe his reputation among the twelve in Jerusalem. There's actually an illuminating shift in verse 8 as well. Paul changes the verb tense. In verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7 he says, excuse me, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's that massive reorientation that happened in his conversion. Back then, when that happened, I counted it as loss. Now look at verse 8. I count as loss. Now, in an ongoing way, that, that, mind, that mindset alteration that I experienced at conversion, I now renew and reinforce every day. That was his ongoing, resolute perspective on all of life every single day from now on. Now, what would cause a man, in Paul's context, having every Really, every human advantage and every human achievement, every human reason to be confident in himself, what would cause him to view all of that as loss, as counting against him? The only way, the only way that could happen was for him to find something better. For him to find something better. Something that exposes the true nature, the inferior value of what he previously held dear. And that's what Paul, that's what happened to Paul. Paul is not here being an ascetic. He's not saying, oh, you know, I had all these things, but to really be a good Christian, I'm going to count them as lost because that's what good Christians do. 
And now I can really impress God by counting all those things lost. You see? And that's what we can sometimes do. I'm really going to be spiritual and then God's going to... No, that's not what Paul is doing. Uh, He's not trying to earn favor with God now by self-denial. He found something better. Look at verse 8 again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Look at that phrase. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You can hear both the respect and the intimacy in that phrase, can't you? This is the only place in the New Testament where Paul refers to Christ in this way. It's the only place. Remember last night in chapter 2 where Paul spoke eloquently about the exaltation of Christ? Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lofty, right? Well, now it becomes intensely personal. Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that's what happened. Paul's perspective on Christ totally changed from a renegade teacher to a from a renegade teacher or a, a false prophet to to the one sent from God, God's own Son, who for Paul expressed on the cross, transformed him from Christ's enemy to Christ's slave. And you know what? This cost Paul. This cost Paul. Look at verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. This cost Paul all the privileges and all the advantages of his social standing and his religious achievement. Because of Christ, Paul lost it all. And don't forget, he's writing this from prison. He's not writing this on break from speaking at a conference. He's writing this from prison. He really did lose it all. But he doesn't regret it for a second, does he? As he says in verse 8, I count them as rubbish. Now that's a rather diplomatic translation. <laughs> I won't render, I won't offer a few alternative translations. Um, it's a vulgar term. It's meant to shock us. Um, the best pedigree the best education, the most promising career track, the most accomplishments. For Paul, it's all, as the King James put it, it's all dung. Maybe one way to capture it. It is all reeking street garbage. Which would include some excrement thrown in. Really, Paul? All you lost, your reputation, your, your upright standing in your community, your, your old friends, 
your, your relational network, your source of income, your, your occupation, your, your, your financial security, even your freedom? Really, Paul? Garbage? Compared to knowing Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. Knowing Christ is so valuable, Paul says, that it compensates for the loss of everything else. If you know Christ, it doesn't matter what you lose. You've got it all. You know, from in America, where I come from, and some of you come from, and watching Jesse with his Texas shirt and his boots, he thinks he comes from Texas. I know. Makes me feel at home. My son was actually born in Texas. He's adopted. But in America, we're richly blessed, and we recognize that. We have a rich Christian heritage that's eroded, but there are there's residue. Um, we, we have abundant freedoms. But in a context like ours, it's, it's not difficult to wear the label Christian. Especially in Texas, uh, in all seriousness. Um, millions attend church regularly in the States. Uh, millions more would speak of Jesus respectfully. That is not knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is altogether different. That's our first point here. Knowing Christ requires recognizing his superior worth. That's what happened to Paul. And that's what happens in authentic conversions. The, what happens in conversion is not simply an acknowledgement of Jesus. What happens in conversion is that the Holy Spirit revolutionizes us. He removes a veil, as it were, from our eyes. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, we see now, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He becomes our all and we undergo a radical value inversion. What was precious to us is no longer. What we what we once despised, what we once wrote off, what we once ignored, now we cherish. Now, it's, it's possible, I alluded to this last night in a prayer, but it, it, it is possible that someone here, there's someone here who knows about Christ. There's someone here who is acquainted with Christian ideas. There's someone here, perhaps, who is very comfortable with Christian talk. Comfortable with Christian conversation. But who doesn't really know Christ? Who hasn't yet come to see Christ as the great Savior He is. Who came to earth. Who humbled Himself. Who took upon Himself our sins. Who, who hasn't tasted who hasn't tasted Christ and, and savored His preciousness and cast themselves up with, with reckless abandon, trusting fully on His work. If you haven't, then God, God through His Word, is very kindly, very mercifully adjusting your misconceptions. And giving you a challenge, a loving but firm challenge. 
Knowing Christ isn't merely assenting to His existence or affirming His goodness. That's not knowing Christ. Knowing Christ means seeing Him as the most valuable thing in the world, without which everything else means nothing. Knowing Christ is not accommodating Him. It's not... It's not acknowledging Him. It's not you know, giving Him sort of room as a moral teacher, nodding in polite approval at Him. No, it's recognizing His superior worth above all things in the universe. That's the first aspect of knowing Christ. Part, point number two. A second aspect of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ requires... Trusting in his saving work. So it first requires recognizing his superior worth. Secondly, knowing Christ requires trusting in his saving work. Let's look again at Paul's story. Love this autobiography. Verse 8. We'll start the second part of verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So now Paul gives the reason why he renounces his former privileges. He counts them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The logic is very important here. Think about that. I renounce these things For a purpose. I have a goal in renouncing them. It's so that I may gain Christ. The implication, I cannot gain Christ unless I renounce these things. So I renounce them in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see the implication? Gaining Christ, which is really just another way of saying knowing Christ, it requires the renunciation of all things that we're trusting in for approval before God. Unless... Oh, brothers and sisters, unless I renounce everything that competes for my trust and allegiance, I cannot gain Christ. I can't gain him. I can't gain him. Unless I renounce those things that compete for my trust and my allegiance. It's a watered-down gospel that invites us to just add Jesus to our lives. And everything will be fine. Life will be better if you put Jesus in the equation. Let him in. He's polite. Oh, he's good. He won't make a mess of things. He won't rearrange the furniture in your life too much. Just give him a little corner in the house. We don't simply add Christ to all the other things we treasure. All the other things we value. All those things that give us pleasure and serve our purposes and are worthy of our Facebook updates. (laughs) And we certainly don't add Him to sort of christen our religious achievements. In mathematical terms, let me put it in mathematical terms. Jesus Plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything 
equals nothing. And Paul unpacks that for us in verse 9. First, that I may gain Christ. And then verse 9 really explains gaining Christ. Okay, This is an explanation of what it means to gain Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see what Paul's doing? He's looking forward to the day, he's looking ahead to that day that he will stand before the throne of God, and he he has this burning ambition. On that day, I'm looking forward, on that day, I want to be found in Christ. That's what I want. Uh, I I want it to be shown, when when everything is revealed, I want it to be shown then that I am in him, that I am joined to him, that my entire existence is bound up with him. That's my burning ambition. Is that your burning ambition? On that day I want to be found in him. Oh man, among all the petty ambitions I have, does anything compare with that? What could be more important, right? Maybe more, more to the point this morning, how? How can that happen? How can I make sure that on that day I am found in Him? It's revealed that I really am in Him. How do you make sure that's the case? Is it through sheer obedience? Is it through sincere effort? Well, yeah, I know I sin, but I'm sincere. I do my best. Is it by making sure that your good deeds outweigh your your bad deeds on some giant heavenly scale? Add them up, the good's good's better. The good's bigger. Is it through church attendance? Is it through serving? Is it through sacramental participation? Just make sure you get to Mass and you're good to go. The city I come from is full of people like that. 65, 70% Catholic. Just make, just get to Mass. Don't miss Mass and, and you're good. Well, Paul shows us the key to answering maybe the most important question in your entire existence. There's really here two choices, two kinds of righteousness. Okay, here's your choice. Two kinds of righteousness. Number one, and according to Paul, it's the way not to be found in Christ. Verse nine, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Okay, so here's a choice on that day. You can you can face that day with your own righteousness. Okay, you can stand there. What you have is your own righteousness. In other words, you can base your relationship upon your obedience to Christ's commands. You can base your your eternal standing on what you do and who you are. That's one kind of righteousness. Anyone volunteer? (laughs) That's one kind of righteousness, and Paul wants nothing of it. In fact, that's the way he used to think about his relationship with God. That's what he said in verse 6. A righteousness according to the law, blameless. That's how we used to think. But there's a different kind of righteousness altogether. It, it's not based on what you do. Second half of verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but 
alternative, that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is a different kind of righteousness altogether. It's not based on what you do. It's a category distinction. It comes from God. It comes from God's gracious granting of acceptance. His his freely given, undeserved verdict over your life. You are righteous. You are accepted. You are welcome. Okay? Stand before God. My righteousness. Stand before God. Receive a righteousness that comes from God. How do I get in on this? How do I get this kind of righteousness? That's what I want to know. Well, the billion dollar answer is right before us in the text. It comes through faith in Christ. If we acknowledge our sins, our moral bankruptcy, and we turn away from it, and we cast ourselves on God's mercy, trusting that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to atone, to cover, to remove my sin from my life so that I can be forgiven, I can be clean, I can be accepted before God, that's faith in Christ. And that gets you this kind of righteousness. It gets it for you. Faith. Laying hold of what Christ has done. So remember our second point. Knowing Christ requires trusting in his saving work. And so, the question. What are you trusting in? Upon what platform have you taken your stand? And you just, you're... you're, You're happy to bounce on it. It's not going to break. Your confidence is in it. What are you standing on? What's your confidence in? Let me say this. Whatever, whatever you believe about God or Christ or the afterlife, whatever you believe in about those things, today, right now, you are trusting in something to make it right then. Whether you like it or not. Unless you're in despair. Unless you're, you're despairing of your own. And then you may be close to the kingdom of God. But whatever you believe about God or Christ or the afterlife or however much you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're tracking with what's going on here. You are trusting in something to make it right then. And if you're not trusting in Christ to make it right then then you don't know him. I'm not saying you're inferior. I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying, according to the Bible, if it's not Christ you're trusting in, then you just don't know him. But you can. <laughs> you can. Now, for many, if not most of us, if, you, if you're like me, you do know him. You do trust him. But it's just so easy to shift your trust to something else, isn't it? So easy to go, yes, I do love Jesus, I'm a believer, but boy, I'm trusting in this. Boy, I'm wanting this. Boy, I get comfort in this. 
So tempting to become focused on me, become satisfied with me, to build a monument to me, me, me. This giant me monster just takes me over. Let this text remind us. I want to be found on that day by trusting Christ this day. Right? You can shift back today. That's what, that's what I do every morning in my devotions. I'm just shifting back my trust. That day depends on this day. That's why the most valuable thing in all of life is knowing Christ. Third. The third aspect of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ means becoming like Really knowing Christ means becoming like Him. Look with me at verse 10. That, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul has mentioned knowing Christ, that phrase already in verse 8. But here at the end of the passage, he returns to that idea and he unpacks it. This is the ultimate goal of Christ, of Paul's life. It's the ultimate purpose of gaining him. It's the ultimate purpose of being found in him. The ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of gaining him, it's to know him. It's to know him. Now, Paul knew Christ. Do you think Paul knew Christ? He, he did. Um, he had been apprehended by Christ on the Damascus road. He had entered a personal, intimate relationship with Christ. But that wasn't the end for Paul. That only sparked a passion to know him better. Christ was this inexhaustible well from which Paul wanted to drink every day, day after day, always more to know, always more of his character to ponder, always more of his faithfulness to experience, always more of his presence and his comfort and his grace to enjoy. Oh, what a heart this man has. That's what Paul means by knowing, not knowing about, not having correct mental ideas concerning, not, not, not limited to emotional thrills. Not simply a subjective emotional, emotional experience. It's intimate. It's an intimate, personal relationship that demands the, the response of the whole person. It's the, the, the going out, the drawing out of the whole person to Christ. Knowing Christ touches all of our lives. And the result is, when you know Christ that way, when he does become this inexhaustible well that you just drink and you just drink and you drink, and I can't even see my face in the bottom of the well because it's, it's bottomless. The result is, I want to become more like him. I want to be like him. That's what Paul describes in verse 10. There are these twin aspects in verse 10 of knowing Christ. I come to know first the power of his resurrection. And second, and I'll just render it more literally, 
the sharing of his sufferings. And those are closely joined. These aren't like two separate things that you get to choose from. You know, power of his resurrection. You know what? I'll take that, not the sharing of his sufferings. I'd rather have the power's resurrection. You know, this is not good day, bad day. You know, good days, I'm enjoying the power's resurrection. Bad days, oh, I'm sharing in the sufferings. No, these work together. They're joined. They're inseparable. They, 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 there's this synergy between them, and they're both at work at the same time. So let's look at them first. We're to know the power of his resurrection. Now, what does that mean? Because <laughs> that's kind of lofty, isn't it? The power's resurrection. Simply this. The same life-giving power by which God raised Jesus from the dead, that same power now manifests itself in our lives when we're joined to Christ. That is stunning, isn't it? We don't, we don't just believe in Christ. We don't just make a decision for Christ. We are joined with Christ. And this power that joins us to Him, this power that makes us alive, continues to operate in our lives. We sometimes forget what happened. We sometimes fail to grasp just what it was that happened to us when we were converted. You were not sort of in need of moral improvement. You were dead. You were separated from God. And now you're alive. Now you want to give, now you love singing to Christ. You want to tell others about Christ. You give your life to serve. The things that you once despised, you now love. Do you think that's just you? Did you turn over a new leaf? No, that's resurrection power pulsing through your, 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 into, your, you. It's resurrection power. It's not just you. You're a new creation. This room is full of new creations. New life. Christ's power in you, transforming you. It, it just doesn't always feel like. Hardly ever feels like it. But texts like this give us a true measure. You are a new creation if you're trusting in Him. Power of His resurrection at work in our lives. Now, closely connected with this, the sharing of His sufferings. I may know him, the power is resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. Now, pay attention. There is all the encouragement in the world loaded into this phrase. Read carefully. He doesn't say simply, you're going to suffer. That's not what he says. He says, share in his sufferings. Do you see? Our sufferings are connected with his So for those who believe in Christ, for those who identify with Christ, for those who who have given allegiance to Christ, there, there will be suffering. It is a promise. Okay, it's a promise. Now, some of those sufferings come from our allegiance to Christ. We're not at home in this world. We don't play by its rules. We don't pursue its rewards. We're in a different kingdom. And so, depending on who you are, depending on where you live, depending on your culture, suffering can get, it it falls along a spectrum. It can range from unspoken slights, from former friends, from co-workers. Unspoken slights to 
subtle exclusion. You're no longer part of the in crowd at school. You're no longer really kind of one of the golden boys at work. Just subtle exclusion. Because, you know, he's one of those Christians. Farther along the line, mocking derision. Maybe outright persecution. Maybe death. Countless Christians right now losing their lives because they identify with Christ. Those of whom the world is not worthy. And then more broadly, there's just the the hardships of living in a fallen world. There's remaining sin on our own hearts. My biggest problem is right here. (laughs) That's my biggest problem. Uh, remaining sin in our hearts and, and just the, uh, a fallen world and structures that are under the power of the evil one. That is, Paul says in Romans 8, the whole world groans. This whole, the, the world is not the way God intended it to be. But here's Paul's point. For the believer, all that suffering has a goal. It's not pointless it's, it's, it's not ultimately ambiguous. All that suffering has a goal. All that suffering has a divine intention. It, brothers and sisters, listen, it is conforming us to Him. It is shaping us to be more and more like Him. And, and it is intended to help us know Him better. That suffering under the hand of God, will draw us, it's meant to draw us, into a deeper, more personal communion with Jesus. And don't, don't miss the connection between the two. That power of the resurrection that we talked about, that the power of the resurrection is at work in your suffering. Strengthening you. Giving you endurance. Helping you persevere. Helping you worship Him despite the pain in your body. That's not you. That's that's the power of the resurrection at work in you. And it's at work transforming that suffering into intimate fellowship with Christ. It is no accident. And it is certainly no human achievement. When you interact with a Christian who has undergone or is undergoing intense, prolonged suffering. It is no accident when you interact with someone who suffered that way. A a, a Christian whose earthly life was shattered because of their allegiance to Christ. A believer enduring a long and painful and cruel disease. It's no accident when you sit beside such a person and you are struck by that person's preoccupation with Jesus. Their laser focus on Jesus. They're not being super Christians. They're not being more spiritual than you. That is the power of the resurrection at work in those sufferings. It's no accident when you look in those tired eyes, and I'm thinking of people, you look in those tired eyes and you see how precious Jesus is to them. 
It's no accident when you see in unspeakable circumstances, unthinkable circumstances. They've lost a child. They've lost a spouse. One who they've lived their life with, they lose them. It's no, it's no accident when you see, in spite of that, through the tears, joy. Oh, be discerning. Right, that, that's the power of the resurrection, right before your eyes. You're, you're seeing it. It's drawing them close to Jesus. It's making them like Jesus. It's binding them with Jesus. And one day, one day, this conformity with Christ, this becoming like Him, it will be complete when we're raised at Christ's return. Our own resurrection that flows from His. That's verse 11. The true Christian has gained Christ now. But one day, we will Fully, fully gain Him. We know Christ now. Oh yeah, we know Him. But then we'll truly know Him. Changes life. Changes death. Two months ago, I two months ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and I watched her, as she always did, just take control. Okay, I don't want chemo. I'm too old. Just be sure you take care of this, and be sure you take care of this, and. It's like, Mom, you're just so much poise, such peace, such calm. It's the power of the resurrection. And I go to the Dominican Republic, because she has three or four months, and I finish preaching and come off the stage, and there's a text, call me from my wife, and I called my mom, slipped into a coma. So I changed my, my changed my trip and I fly back and to be by her bedside and here she is in a coma and surrounded by her family and I had a chance to talk to her and tell her how grateful I was and doctors will tell you that there's a chance people can understand in a coma they don't know for sure but some do and so I I poured out my heart to her and had some special time with her and thanked her. And then two days later, she went home. Uh, this changed it. Because it wasn't tragic loss. It was loss, but it wasn't tragic loss. <laughs> she has gained Christ. She's fully gained him. I've gained him. She's fully gained him. I told her, Mom, <laughs> I'm jealous of you. 
because you're, you're about to, my mom loved to learn. She gave me a love for learning. She was sharp as she could be. And I said, Mom, you're about to just see it all. Your, your mind's about to explode. You're about to learn so much. I'm so jealous. Oh, have fun. <laughs> she gained him. She gained him. Changes life. It changes death. Well, knowing Christ means becoming like him. Let me say this to you. If, if you're here and you, you can identify a bit with what I'm saying, maybe all too much, and you're mainly aware of hardship in your life, you're wearied, you're just weary, you're just tired, you're wearied by trials, you're weary in suffering, that's you. The Holy Spirit, through this text, wants to transform that perspective. That suffering, put your finger on it, identify it in your mind, that suffering, it shows you belong to Him. It shows you belong to Him. And it's making you like Him. It's not purposeless. It's under His sovereign hand, it's making you like Him. And, and it's meant to draw you closer to Him. You will know Him in ways you would not otherwise. Doesn't mean we don't pray for healing. Doesn't mean we don't pray for uh, the, 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 a change in circumstances, yes. But if those don't come, you know something. Ah, it's, it's not God is turning a, a deaf ear to you. It's not God is not choosing you for the healing. It's not God is indifferent to your cries. You just go, okay, the relief hasn't come yet. Good. There's something he's doing. He wants me to know more closely that I'm his. And he wants me to know him more Intimately, and he wants to make me more like him. That's happening. That's happening. I promise you. Not a nanosecond of your suffering is wasted. God's too good. He's too powerful. He's too involved. He's too attentive. He's too sovereign. Not a nanosecond of your suffering is wasted. This text is a precious gift. It's here to help us know maybe the most important thing there is to know. That the most valuable thing in all of life is knowing Jesus Christ. This text is holding forth Christ to us this morning. Holding him forth to you. It's the greatest thing you'll ever know. The greatest thing you'll ever have. The one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But humbled himself. Taking the form of a slave. Dying on a cross. So that you can say, Christ Jesus, my by trusting in Him, brothers and sisters, and resting in Him, we are found in Him.
gain Him. And when we gain Him, we've gained everything that's worth having. Let's pray. Jesus, we... For those of us who know you deep in our hearts, Lord, we know this, this is true. And with all our sin and with all our weaknesses, Lord, deep down, we know you are our treasure. You really are. You really are the... You really are our all. Where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have saved us. You alone give us worth. You alone give us peace. You alone are good. You alone are kind. You alone are loving. You alone are sovereign. Oh, we love knowing you, Lord. And we want to gain you more and more. Lord, I ask you now that Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney would be marked by many things. I pray they would be marked by one thing in particular, that you are the most valuable thing to them. That they treasure you, that they love you, and come what may, come suffering, come opposition, come trial, come loss, Lord, that in, in having you and knowing you, they know they are unmoved because they know that, that having you means having everything. Mark this church by this reality, I pray. In Jesus' name.